My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to help make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-SUMMER-3-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Making money in the stock market is simply not that easy. This is something I actually worry about all the time. And given that today, a boring session where the Dow inched up 7 points, that's going to be dip 0.09%, NASDAQ declined 0.16%, also happens to be the 14th anniversary of Mad Money. I think this is a good moment to talk about the pearls. That's right, the pearls of investing in individual stocks. Not the promise, but the pearls. I know, I know. Aren't I supposed to be the biggest proselytizer for equities on the planet? A regular stock market televangelist? Don't I want a stock in every pot and a high flyer in every garage? Absolutely not. If you want stock market exposure, the best way to get it is with an index fund. Index fund, and then maybe another index fund. When it comes to your retirement money, just put it in a nice, low-cost index fund. I prefer one that mirrors the S&P 500. But individuals and individual stocks are still made for each other. And individual stocks do have certain advantages. Plus, I know you wouldn't be watching if you didn't believe in owning some stocks with your mad money. Hence the name, mad money. So I want you to invest that money wisely because I think you're smart enough to manage your own portfolio alongside an index fund, okay? And that is not an asterisk. I want that index fund to be primary. But I need you to recognize that uh, the mantra here is not buy and hold, it's buy and homework. If you agree with that mantra, and if you do the work, I think you're okay to have some mad money sequestered over here on individual stocks, as long as you have the index fund as the bulwark. However, I like to be as tough on myself as possible. What can I say? I'm a masochist. That's why on this 14th anniversary, I'm going to give you five reasons why it's so hard to make money in the stock market. If only to keep you on your toes and prepare you for the inevitable pain that comes with owning individual stocks. You need to go into this market with your eyes open. So consider the five risks that stared us just in the face today. These have all snuck up on people, making them queasy. If the thought of them scares you, then you might want to rethink how you invest your money. The first unseen risk, how about the grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX? Until the tragic crash of that Ethiopian plane a few weeks ago, the two things we knew about Boeing, well, its stock was broiling with momentum because of tremendous order growth, and the heart of that growth was none other than the 737 MAX. Suddenly, what was great is now horrible. What was strong is now weak. And the stock plummeted 49 points in a matter of days. A week ago, Boeing looked like a terrific investment. Now, well, now you have to ask, will Boeing end up owing a lot of money to its customers? Those airlines who were clamoring to buy more 737 MAX planes just last week. Was Boeing at fault for the crashes? Does it have huge liability here? I don't know. Are you able to handle that level of pain coming out of nowhere? If not, you may want to stick with index funds. I think Boeing will ultimately get through this, but in the near term, I honestly don't have a clue. It's become a battleground, and I dislike battlegrounds. More on that later. The second unseen risk, the dollar stores have been some of the best investments of this era, especially Dollar General. Well, that is until today. Because today we found out that Dollar General will have to spend more money to make less thanks to some important strategic initiatives that nobody I know saw coming. Hence, the stock's 7.5% decline in a single session after they reported their earnings. I think Dollar General is worth buying down here, maybe tomorrow midday, but I accept the fact that tomorrow we might also get blindsided by one or two analysts who pull the plug. 
downgrade the stock. Yesterday, Dollar General was a market darling. Today, it's a market goat. Can you handle that quicker transformation from swan to ugly duckling? If you want to own individual stocks, you need to be prepared for this kind of move, because sooner or later, it will happen to you. It is inevitable. Third unseen risk, J&J, has been one of my favorite stocks for years. It's got terrific management in the form of CEO Alex Gorski and his team. It's got a fantastic pipeline of new drugs. It's got perhaps the best balance sheet in the world. That is not hyperbole. Along with a fine dividend, excellent buyback. But yesterday, the company lost a lawsuit to a woman who's dying of cancer because she says she used J&J's talc, one of their oldest products. The company now owes her $29 million, though J&J, of course, is appealing. There are thousands of these kinds of lawsuits against J&J, with the plaintiffs charging that the company knew it was putting asbestos in its baby powder and still kept selling it, something that investigation by the New York Times and Reuters seemed to confirm. Oh, so let me think. You own J&J coming in for its tremendous health care franchise and because it's the ultimate sleep at night stock. But now you discover it's a stock where you can wake up to a verdict that calls the entire safety thesis of owning this stock into question. Can you handle that? We now know that there'll be the possibility, rightly or wrongly, for many more trial losses going forward. Can you take that pain? We own J&J from my Chapel Trust, and just today we debated whether we can handle any more agony. It's okay if it's just too much for you. Stick with an index fund, where your losses in the J&J may be offset by the 499 other stocks in the S&P 500. Fourth risk, last night I pondered whether the stock of Facebook had been de-risked, meaning the worst was over. I figured what else could go wrong? Wrong! Turns out, there's a ton that can go wrong, including a criminal investigation of Facebook by the Justice Department. This morning, the New York Times reported the prosecutors are examining Facebook's data-sharing deals. A grand jury's been convened. Wonderful. Grand jury proceedings are secret. We can't get a comment from the U.S. attorney or from Facebook itself. So what happens? Well, who the heck knows? We don't know what's going to happen. What's the crime? What's the punishment? Russ Koldikoff. Who knows? Oh, and if there wasn't enough... It doesn't help that there have been multiple days of outages on Facebook's network of late. You ever hear of CBS having multiple days of outages? And if that weren't enough, after the bell, we learned that Chris Cox, the company's chief product officer and a real big important person, is leaving. Big deal. For real. Stock sinking further in after hours trading. Looks like there was a lot more risk here than I thought. Maybe it all stems from privacy concerns. Something, by the way, that I know has been a core value, so to speak, of Apple. They even just put out their first commercial championing your privacy. All I know is I wish Facebook had shared that view. If you're a shareholder, you do too. Finally, when you own stocks, you've got to deal with a lot of lunacy from out of left field, which is perfectly encapsulated by this thing, Brexit. Today, someone had asked me if, if he had to worry about Brexit. I wish I had just said no. But the smartest guy I talked to over in Europe is predicting that the U.K. could experience a famine within five days after a hard Brexit. Yep, it won't be Leningrad or the Irish potato famine of four but it's possible, even after the big vote in Parliament yesterday, that made a hard Brexit a lot less likely that we get something outlandish like that. On the one hand, who wants to own stocks when we need to worry about food riots in London? On the other hand, if the market gets hammered because of Brexit, uh, uh, that turns out to be unfounded. Well, maybe the, they take the deal, maybe they postpone it forever. Then you may end up wishing you used some of that weakness to do some buying. Look, I know you come here for reassurance. And instead, what do I do? I just gave you the equivalent of these pharmaceutical ads which say that your bladder will be stronger, but here's 42 things that can go wrong if you use it. That's okay. See, the bottom line is, if you want to invest in stocks, you need to know the potential risks as well as the rewards. You have to know what could go wrong. And if you're okay with that, then stock picking, well, it just might be for you. (laughs) What a way to celebrate our 14th anniversary. Here's to many more.
Let's go to George in Vermont. George. Hey, Jim. Good afternoon. I, I'm calling about all these uh, stores. Uh, you hit it out of the park there in December. That was, you know, it's been a great call, great yeah. run. Thank but, you. Uh, my current my current quagmire is uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer has uh, three pages on Ollie's this month. Uh, they make a bold call to be bearish. They highlight a few issues, store inventory tracking, what's on hand, operational shortcoming, rising competition. But then they get into their accounting. And that's kind of where I'm wondering if it's time to ring the register. They talk about percentage of the you know, assets and in, uh, inventory has gone from 22 to 29.4. They talk about uh, inventory turns, 160 days versus Sears, 101, Walmart, huh. 36. And they talk about operating margins. And um, I'm wondering, you know, uh, kind of what your thoughts are. All right, well, here's my, here's my thinking about it. Other than the fact that one of my favorite analysts, Matthew Boss, has liked it for a long time. And we've liked it, made a lot of money for people. Mark Butler is a straight shooter. He's the CEO. Why do we have him on? And we'll go point by point. And let's see what he has to say. And then we can each make up our own minds. All right. Happy anniversary, Kramerica! Thanks for sticking with us through the good, the bad, and of course the ugly. On Man Money Tonight, has GE reset expectations for the stock? On our 14th anniversary, the CEO of the 127-year-old company joins me here tonight. Then I'm introducing you to an upstart looking to improve our nation's trucking and border logistics industry. Don't miss my sit-down with a private player. Transfix. But first, Carvana. I know you like this one. It's bringing its car buying by click to the critical mass. But how long can it walk the growth tightrope? I'm giving you my take. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. The hardest thing about picking winners in the stock market, or at least the thing that throws the most people off the scent, is that you need to combine two totally different disciplines into one decision-making process. On the one hand, there's the homework, where we research individual companies to figure out whether their businesses are poised to do well going forward, right? The fundamentals. But on the other hand, you have to understand what's happening on the Wall Street fashion show, where whole sectors come in and out of style for reasons that have little to do with the actual companies themselves. Combining the business analysis with the fashion show analysis is where it all gets tricky. Exhibit A, just look at the stock of Carvana. Yeah, C-A-R-V-A-N-A, excuse my Philadelphia accent. Carvana, the web-based used car dealership with one of the hottest stocks on the planet. This thing is up a smoking 70% this year to date. It's up more than 160% over the past 12 months. Yet the stock is still down 17 bucks from its highs last summer. That's how hard it is to get, uh, how hard it got hit during the hideous fourth quarter bear market. I bring this one up because I made the mistake of recommending Carvana on October 3rd. Yeah, peak of things. Albeit only for speculation with a bunch of caveats, like that you should buy it gradually on the way down. At the same time, the stock had already pulled back from its highs. It was a 54 and I thought it was too good to ignore into any additional weakness. Of course, the darn thing plummeted down to 28 bucks on its flows right before Christmas, even as the story kept getting better and better. 
Since the bottom, Kavanaugh's made a remarkable recovery. It's now back up to 55. And you know the craziest part? Two weeks ago, the company reported what I have to tell you was a fairly, if not very, disappointing quarter. The house of pain. Yet its stock roared up 7% the next day before tacking on a monumental 7% again so far this week, despite the total absence of news. This is what I mean about the homework versus the fashion show. When Carvana was doing great during the fourth quarter, nobody cared because that was exactly the kind of high flyer growth stock that money managers were ringing the register on. Now, though, Carvana's back in style and it's so hot that it can scream higher even on not so hot numbers. So what the heck are you supposed to do here with it? I admit I don't have the best track record on Carvana. But we try to learn from our mistakes here on Mad Money. And I think we've got a better read on the, st- on the story now than we did five months ago. First, from the perspective of a growth-oriented money manager, Carvana seems to have a great story. The company is disrupting, how much do we like that, the used car industry with its business model. You buy your vehicle online, then it's delivered to you, or you go to one of their gigantic automated garages, like, garage-like, it's a gigantic, but I've seen one. It's a huge vending machine for used cars, and that's where you pick it up. Nobody likes buying a used car in person, do they? As someone who's occasionally been compared to a used car salesman, I can tell you that it genuinely hurts my feelings, and I got a pretty thick skin. Carvana's recognized that people hate the old model, so they let you do your shopping online, giving you a tremendous amount of information on their website. And every car they sell comes with a seven-day return policy, like a week-long test drive. Oh, come on, that is a brilliant concept. And the growth here has been downright incredible as Carvana continues to expand across the country, making its used cars available in more and more markets. Last month, Carvana teamed up with Bank of America to offer a streamlined digital car buying process. You can now buy Carvana's vehicles from a Bank of America platform, you know, they've got a great website, and apply for immediate financing. There's still a lot to like, although lately we've gotten some real question marks here. More on that in a minute. The problem here is that the stock's an insanely wild trader that seems to have come unglued from the underlying fundamentals. When Carvana reported a truly fabulous beat and race quarter in early November, the stock spiked 11% on the news. Then it quickly gave up all of its gains the very next day before slipping still lower. Later in November, the company held an analyst meeting that was very well received, yet the stock barely budged. At the beginning of December, Car, uh, CarMax, which of course is a more traditional used car dealership, announced some new omni-channel offerings, including delivery and Carvana stock. Well, it got crushed. It went down 10% in a single day. Put it all together, though, and this is yet another high-flying growth stock that got crushed for no particular reason during the fourth quarter, just like the Cloud Kings. And also like the Cloud Kings, Carvana's come roaring back since the beginning of the new year. As the stocks rebounded, though, the bears have gone on the attack. Carvana's been hit with some skeptical analyst coverage, and about a month ago, the short sellers at Spruce Point, we've seen, heard from them before, published a scathing report predicting anywhere from 50 to 70% downside in the intermediate term and 100% downside long-term, 100%. They call Carvana a used car dealership masquerading as a high-growth tech business and claim its rapid growth rate has been, I quote, built on smoke and mirrors. Why? According to Spruce Point, Carvana's most unique quality is the fact that, quote, it appears to make an attractive profit on the sale of subprime auto loans to financing partners about whom management has not been transparent, end quote. They go on to say, quote, without the provision of attractive financing on uneconomic terms, the economics of the business would collapse, end quote. Wow. 
Fast forward to two weeks ago when Carvana reported its latest quarter, and the results were flat out disappointing, as I mentioned. They missed on the top line and on the bottom line. Their guidance was a bit of a bummer, with management forecasting three to four, 3.4 to $3.5 billion worth of sales. Wall Street was looking for 3.55, so under that, along with a wider-than-anticipated loss. Ugh. Granted, they're still talking about 76% revenue growth, but normally when a stock runs up going into a not-so-hot quarter, it ends up selling off. Even those bullish analysts noted that these were suboptimal numbers, and some of the bears are arguing that the company may need to raise capital this year. Yet Carvana rallied more than 7% on the news. It got another boost last week when Tesla announced it would close most of its physical locations and start selling cars online, which was taken as an endorsement of Carvana's business model. Put it all together, and this thing's been a juggernaut 60% in the last month. That is just too hot for this guy. Bottom line, when Carvana was reporting great numbers in the fourth quarter and the stock was going down, it was a fabulous buying opportunity. Now, though, we keep getting what I consider to be bad news, bad news, bad news. That scathing research report, a disappointing quarter. Stock keeps going higher. At these levels, you know what? I say sell, sell, sell. Marshall in Virginia, Marshall. Hey, how you doing, Jim? I am doing um, well. How about you, Marshall? I'm doing great. Uh, UVA won today, so I'm watching the tournament, but I... I'm like thinking about taking UVA about to go all the way, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking it. Uh, I'd like to know um, what about Ford. Is that is that a good stock to have right now? I'm not going to recommend Ford. I, they are such a show me situation. They absolutely, absolutely, absolutely have to put up to get not one but two good quarters before I even think about recommending it to my viewers. All right, when it comes to Carvana, you had a great buying opportunity in the fourth quarter. Right now, though, I think it is a sell, sell, sell. There's much more mad money ahead. GE CEO called 2019 a reset year for the 127-year-old company. But how does he plan to turn the thing around? He joins me here tonight. Then, the trucking industry is considered backbone of the U.S. economy, right? I'm finding out how one private player is driving innovation in space and competing with Uber at the same time, or at least Uber Freight. And with all, your, all eyes on Boeing following the grounding of the 737 MAX planes, how should you approach the stock? I'm giving you my take. So stay with Kramer. Wow. Okay, on our 14th anniversary show, do you really think we'll just do just any old regular show? No. Here's what we're doing today. We've got Larry Culp. Larry Culp is the new CEO of General Electric. And we've got to ask ourselves, is this it? Is this the turning point for what has been an ailing business? Earlier today, GE issued its long-awaited guidance for 2019 and beyond. The near-term numbers were far from good, but they're not a surprise if you've been paying attention to the recent analyst meeting. And initially, the stock got hit. But then Culp started talking on the conference call, and Wall Street clearly liked what he's had to say. As did I. GE ultimately closing up 2.8%. I don't know. Could be a bottom. I'm not so sure about some of the longer-term forecasts here, especially for the troubled power division. But this is a huge story, and it deserves a much closer look. So let's check in with Larry Culp, the chairman and CEO of GE, to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Culp, welcome to Man Money. How are you, sir? Hey, Jim. Good. Congratulations. Okay. Thank Happy you so anniversary. much. I could not resist because we wanted someone big for this one, and we got the biggest. Okay. I rarely... And asked about a company more than GE. And it's never what you want to be asked. It's like, can they make it? What was your message today? I think the message was pretty simple. Our strategy is clear. We want to strengthen the balance sheet and set our businesses up to play and win. 19 will be a reset year. But if you look past 19 into 20 and 21, we're going to be on a better path toward a better place. Okay. Uh, there is a, a group of people who watch this show uh, who how, they own GE. I mean, it's probably... 
own more G than anybody else, anybody else's show. And they hear the term reset, and they don't know what that means. Because for all you know, it's like a video game term. What does reset mean for the average person out there? I think for the average person, particularly anybody who holds our stock, they know we have a host of issues. No shortage of opportunities, but we have a, a number of problems we need to work through this year. What reset means, Jim, is this is the year that we share with the world mm -hmm. what those issues are and the plan that we talked through today as to how we're going to address them. It's going to take some time, and we won't be finished come New Year's Eve. Okay. But if you give us a little bit of time, we'll, I think, make a lot of progress. Now, when a, the average person hears that, I think the first thing is they say is, well, hold it. He's saying it's not going to turn anytime soon. Why the heck should I hold on to it or even buy it? Well, that's a personal investment decision. Sure. Sure. And I have never hawked a stock. I think what we're going to try to do, frankly, is just share with people in as transparent a way as we possibly can what those issues are, at the same time what the opportunities that we see in the businesses are, and the plan that we have. But it will take time. And we don't want to sugarcoat this, right? right? This is not a quick 90-day, half-year fix. This is going to take a while. We are where we are, but we'll get through it. All right, now, I want people to know at home that Larry is an outsider. That's a very significant thing because GE historically hired from inside. As an outsider, what have you seen? And can you tell us how things could have gone so awry in a tremendous economic expansion? Jim, I'm an outsider. I spent 25 years at my, my former company. But it's a company I've studied. It's a company I have learned a lot from, albeit from the outside, over a long period of time. So I come with a little bit of a perspective on the company. What have I found? I found a very strong team. This team has been through a lot, but I think it's a resilient, certainly a capable team that knows where it is and wants to do better. I have found customer relationships the world over like I've never seen before. A lot of that comes from the fact that we not only sell big ticket equipment, but we live with our customers and that equipment over 10, 20, 30 years in supporting the equipment and frankly, the technology that undergirds those relationships is really quite special. Okay, the technology for aerospace is second to none. There isn't anybody who would disagree with me. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Boeing just had some serious issues involving safety. We don't really know the source of it. Mm -hmm. How long can Boeing have 737s grounded before we have to start worrying about the best division you have, aerospace? Right. Jim, I think our focus, like Boeing's, has really been on safety mm -hmm. here in the wake of the tragedy in Ethiopia. It struck close to home for us at GE, not only because Boeing is a key partner in our relationship or our joint venture with Safran, we lost two of our own people in that, in that tragedy. I think we're doing all we can to work with Boeing, with Safran, the NTSB, the authorities on the ground in Ethiopia, in addition to the airline, to get to root cause. But other than that, it's really premature for us to, to talk about what impact may fall from this okay. on our own businesses. Now, uh, when you came in, obviously, uh, you had been on the board. There was a perception that maybe the thing were earnings risk. I mean, one time we heard a number of $2 per share. Obviously, that didn't come true. Mm -hmm. It turns out that balance sheet risk is equally as important. You've made some moves already. I thought they took care of a lot of the risk. There are some critics, some analysts we all know, who have been saying, you know what, not so fast, Jim. You may think that it's great that he sold this division for a fortune to Dan Earl's old, old employer. Right. But what really matters is that you're not thinking about long-term care issues and you're not thinking about power issues. And that both of those present a real risk to the bonds, which therefore can translate to the stock. True, false, where do you come out? 
Well, I think you, like me, and I'm sure many others who follow the story, are thinking about all of those issues, right? right? I mean, there's a reason we talk about our number one strategic priority being restoring the balance sheet to a better, stronger position. Right. We've been very clear about our intent to reduce both the leverage on our industrial balance sheet and at GE Capital. I think we're making good progress in that regard. We'll have the better part of $40 billion of proceeds once we get to the other side of our sale of our biopharma business to right. Danaher, the, uh, the monetization of our stake in Baker Hughes, and the, uh, the Wabtec merger right. that just closed, right. right? There's a lot of capital there that we're going to be able to put to use to bring down the leverage on the industrial balance sheet. We're at work on the capital side in a, in a similar fashion. We have $10 billion of dispositions planned this year okay. to continue to bring the leverage down. But this is something that is going to be a long time in, uh, in, in, in coming because those transactions will play out during the course of the year. The issues you referenced in power are ones we're going to need to work through. And long-term care, as I think many people who tuned in to our teach-in right. last week understand, that that's a real uh, obligation on our part, but one that we'll see through over a long period of time. You have made things far more transparent than what I'm used to from GE, whether it be the way you describe different divisions, 16 words per each, which I love. The way you do accounting looks like a lot of other companies. But it does come out, particularly the presentation you made today, was kind of stunning about how power has so many problems. And we all knew they were problems. The first thing we have to do is you talk about, let's give them a name, a fantastic right. letter that you put in. <laughs> but now that we have a name, we come back, and I found it daunting. I said, geez, I hope that the decline in orders doesn't continue. But you seem to think that there's light at the end of the tunnel. But you know, how do you know it's not an oncoming train? Right. Well, I think what we've tried to do is embrace reality of power as best we can, right? As we've broken down the root causes, we think it's actually pretty simple. Not hard to, not easy to, to solve, but I think easy to describe. Mm -hmm. We were clearly late to recognize the downturn in the gas turbine demand. Certainly in, in the wake of the Alstom. Well, can I interrupt you to say that please. it's not fair to say we. I know you care about your team and you're filled with team, but that was not your call. I want people to know that. But I'm, well, I appreciate that, but I'm on that team now. All right, fair right? enough. So it is we. So going forward, we know we have to adjust our cost structure to deal with that. We know that there are a number of inheritance taxes, if you will, in the wake of the Alstom transaction that we need to tend to. And frankly, for the last several years, I think even the team would admit we have undermanaged this business. Right. We can adjust our cost structure to deal with current market demand. We can de-risk our outlook by relying more on backlog and less on future orders. The Alstom obligations are what they are. They will tail off over time. And we're working very hard on a daily basis to run this business, which is still, I think, a good business, better. Okay, you mentioned Alstom several times there. There is an article in the Wall Street Journal today saying that uh, GE's leadership knew uh, much earlier that the power segment had problems. Now, again, that is not you, but I read this article about Goodwill, and it seemed like, well, something is wrong here, and someone should be held accountable for that. Well, I've read the article as well, mm -hmm. right? And I think we do have issues in power. I wasn't there right. in, in even the boardroom prior to last spring. I took on this role five and a half months ago. So I can't really talk about what people knew at the time. But if I look at 2018, I knew this was a bit of a fluid situation even inside the company as we were, I think, getting our arms around that reality. With respect to the accounting, the accounting around the Alstom 
merger is complicated. Okay. Not only because the headline price was what it was, but remember, we also committed to a number of joint ventures, and we took on some other liabilities. So I don't want to get into the, 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 the bowels of the accounting, but I think there's a rationale there which we've certainly tried to explain in our disclosures in concert with our, uh, our auditors, but it is clearly something under review, and we'll work with the regulators to, to see that through. Sunlight, the best disinfectant, as Justice Brandeis said. Now, uh, I do feel that we have to make this comparison between the S&P 500 and what GE's done. Now, you came in and you've bought, you bought more than $2 million worth of stock. You're actually up on the stock. Congratulations. That's good. You've got a pay package which clearly incents you to get the stock back to 31 before the, where the decline uh, really began. What do we tell people? Listen, we know you've lost money. We know that it's a difficult situation. But these, this gap can turn and not because the S&P goes lower. Jim, again, I don't want to make stock recommendations. I know, but you have to understand people. I'm not asking you to hold people's hands. But I, do you regret that you took a pay package where you make it to 7 million shares at 30 and 31? Jim, I have no regrets. I've had a blast the last five okay. and a half months being with this team, with these customer relationships, and all that we do for our customers, all that we have under <laughs> development from a technical perspective. There's a lot to do here at GE. I hear from shareholders. I hear from employees, from retirees. All sorts of folks who have really borne a, a deep and personal financial uh, pain given what's happened to the, la the company the last several years. Frankly, that's been part of my own motivation to take sure. this on, right? To try to make this right for the, the people on the payroll and the people who are very much a part of the GE family. And all we can do is, again, embrace the reality that we have. Right. We have opportunities. We certainly have some problems. It'll take us a while, but if people give us the benefit of the doubt, I think they're going to see improvement over time that is sustainable and should translate into the value for shareholders. Because of your fabulous work at Danaher, which was one of the remark most remarkable tenures I've ever seen a CEO have, you deserve the benefit of the doubt. I will tell you that I believe, can't speak for the American people, I know better than to do that, but there are tens of millions of people who are pulling for you to bring this thing back to where it was and then some. I want to thank Larry Kolb, Chairman and CEO of GE, and thank you for the nice comments about our 14th anniversary. Stay with Kramer. Last year, we've been hearing the same thing from company after company. America has a shortage of truckers. Between the explosive growth of online shopping and the new safety regulations that make it so existing truckers can't spend as much time on the road, we don't have enough drivers to keep the system running smoothly. But maybe the trucker shortage is just a symptom of a broader problem. The fact that we have such a confusing, poorly managed, and yes, inefficient logistics network in this country. Lately, a bunch of companies have been popping up with potential solutions here, which is so important for our economy. And tonight we're going off the tape to hear from one of them, the privately held Transfix. The business of matching carriers with freight is still mostly handled by phone, by email. Uh, Transfix uses machine learning to help its customers cut down on waste by routing trucks more efficiently. They streamline the data of all shipments onto a single platform, allowing their clients to make more profitable decisions. In short, they're trying to drag this business to the 21st century. So let's take a closer look with co-founders Drew McElroy and Jonathan Salama, the CEO and Chief Technology Officer of Transfix, to learn more about their tech-centric private logistic company. Gentlemen, welcome to Mad Money. Jim, thanks for having us. All right, guys. So let's go. Um, Drew, let, let's just 
figure out, paint the picture here. Sure. Every company seems to be moaning freight, 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 freight. Why hasn't anyone been able to fix it? And why don't they just call you and get it better? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, to be honest, we're, we like to think that we're doing a really good job of, of fixing it now and, and have been for the last five years. Uh, historically, of course, trucking is a very wasteful business. There's something in the neighborhood of 65 billion miles driven empty by trucks just in the United States every year. Well, you're a technology officer. Um, to me, it would seem that even before the web, that uh, these consumer packaged goods companies would say, listen, I don't want you coming back unless you have something in that truck. It's a complex problem. There, there's, a, at a, there's a giant micro level problems where shippers don't talk to each other, carriers don't talk to each other, and nobody in the middle right now has been able to figure it out. Well, how Until much us? of this problem is because people are afraid that one day there will be autonomous drivers uh, driving trucks and they'll, they'll be out of a job after they get it. How much of it is because people don't want the job or it's not being, they're not being paid enough? And how much of it is it's just there's so much business we can't possibly have enough people? <laughs> for, for us, it's not just uh, are they paid enough, not paid enough. It's are, the, are their asset utilized enough? Uh, that's where most of our mesh and algorithm is built for. It's, uh, at the end of the day, we're accountable for our, to our shippers to match their freight with the best possible truck out there for them, and that's what we do. Okay, so we know from we happen to spend, I don't know if you had a chance, we spend a lot of nice quality time with Uber Freight. Sure. And they use, obviously, the, um, the same technology as Uber to be able to find drivers. And one of the things that we learned was that there are many people who are disenfranchised from the trucking business who want to be truckers. Is this another way for people to get into that, or is it really just more matching the cargoes, matching the truck? So we're uh, ultimately, we want to empower whomever wants to be a truck driver. And historically, truck driving can be a fantastic profession. You can earn a premium over, you know, local jobs, right. and, and, and obviously there's lots of great things. But uh, historically, or in the last 20 years, it has been a very difficult lifestyle. And so the ability to both drive quantitative ROI as well as qualitative life improvements, we think makes the, the profession that much more attractive. And you know, as our market marketplaces begin to, to scale and gain the traction that we've got, uh, we see people saying, I would love to get in this business. How can I, how can I sign up? With oh, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it's everyone, you're, you're saying that not everyone has heard that there's a truck shortage. It's just us guys on Wall Street? You know, you'd, you'd be surprised. Um, and I think to say there's a truck driver shortage is right. a bit simplistic. You know, when, when things don't work properly, people are like, we need more trucks. Right. Which right. seems fair uh, until you kind of dive into the math of it and say, well, again, maybe there's not enough truck drivers, but there's definitely not enough utilization of the trucks we have. And okay. if we can take that 35% of time, empty, empty time and empty miles and put it back into the network, uh, in fact, it may be sufficient to the point where these guys can start to generate that much more income by having that many more miles loaded and, and hours you know, on the okay. clock as opposed to off. How much of the problem is Amazon? I don't think it's... Uh, in terms of volume that you didn't have, say, 10 years ago. A lot of volume. That's a lot of volume. But, uh, I mean, the just mobile technology and the way we've consumed, like, mm -hmm. eco like as a t as a society, we've changed. We've we've changed. Obviously, we order a lot more online, and right. that has increased the the volume of like goods we need. But we would have got those goods either way at a at a, at a warehouse eventually, like at a store. Um, I, I I don't think it's the it's a major shift oh. in the economy. Okay, one last question, Drew. Sir, uh, a year from now, we'll freight. Prices be lower. 
that is the goal. I mean, there, there's, there's two ways to think about this. There's certainly natural fluctuation in the price of freight depending on the supply of trucks and the, and the supply of loads. So there's certainly market fluctuations in there. But as we continue to drive out waste and drive more utilization to the drivers, we find that the rate on a per mile basis actually continues to go down. Which, All right. Which, so if you can make the drivers more money and lower the cost of goods going to shelves, that's a win for everybody. That's exactly what we want. That's, that's what right. we want for America. Okay, that is Drew, Mac- uh, Drew McElroy and Jonathan Salama, the CEO and Chief Technology Officer of Transfix. Freight matters. It's why you're paying more at the supermarket and the store. May have money's back in. It is time! Time for the light round! Thank you much, my brother. Close one of us. Same as second. Bye bye bye. Watch some camera. Close your parking. I'm playing this out. And then the light rounds are. Are you ready, Skiing? Time for the light round! Close your parking. I'm going to start with Walter in North Carolina. Walter! Oh, yeah, Jim. From oh, yeah, Walter. Walter. North Carolina. All right. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I watch your show every night and have for many years. Thank you. I have a large holding in Bank of America shares and a big profit. My question, should I sell and take the No, profit? it's too inexpensive. But first of all, thank you for those kind comments, Walter, but it's too inexpensive. I don't want you to sell it. And if it comes down, maybe you buy some more. I just think it's too good a company to let loose at these prices. How about we go to Thomas in California? Thomas. Who are, sir? Oh, thank you for serving. What's up? I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on Huawei, sir. Why, why? No, no. Um, there's a kid nearby, uh, Wyatt Bebop, that I like. We call him YY. I don't like the stock YY, though. Why? Because it's a Chinese company, of, uh, I'd say, of indeterminate earnings. So let's take a pass. Gary in Texas. Gary! Hey, Jim. A couple months ago, I bought some Okta, OKTA, with my mad money. Um, wondering if you think I ought to hold it. I think they're a great company. I mean, else. if you're up really big, obviously, no one ever got hurt taking a little profit. But Okta is a great company and good for the long term. Eddie in Florida. Eddie! Good afternoon. With you since the Cardinal and Kramer days. There you go, man. Congratulations on your anniversary. Thank you very much. Calling about a a biopharmaceutical company. They had some great news recently. The stock was doing great until Goldman Sachs caused a small dilution on the stock at $144 a share. Since then, it's been killed on a daily basis despite many upgrades. Sarepta Therapeutics. I like Sarepta. I mean, it's got that muscular dystrophy uh, possible uh, prospect there. Um, but the stock is, uh, look, that stock is in for some heavy selling. But I like the company. I'm not going to back away from it. Let's go to Malik in Virginia. Malik. Hey. Malik, what's up? Hey, I'm um, wondering about the future of Wendy's. You know, Wendy's stock has been acting just okay, but I've got to tell you, the management is there is good. Uh, we had Todd Pentagor on several times. I think it's a great long, I think it's a good situation. Now, fast food is not doing well, and that's because McDonald's stock hasn't been going up. But you know what? I think Wendy's is fine. How about we go to Greg in Texas? Greg. Hey, Kramer. Hey, Greg. Hey, first time caller, long time watcher. Okay. It's about uh, ADT. I bought it at 705. It's been going down tremendously over the last couple of days. They've got good revenue growth, great cash flow. Thought they were partnering with Amazon. What do you think? No, I'm not a fan. I think that ADT, don't buy, uh, don't buy, it came don't public. Buy. It's been bad ever since. And I think that they could technologically be completely blown out of the water. Don't touch it. Let's go to Steve in Florida. Steve. 
Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Steve. I want to know about NRZ in the real estate sector. You know, it's one of those, it's a re- residential REIT. We have no idea what they really own. I cannot recommend a stock like that. That's the kind of stock, you, the yield is very high, but they can blow me right out of the water. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going there for that one. I need to go to Philip in North Carolina. Philip. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Hey, not bad. How about you, Philip? Listen, I just got to tell you, at the end of the day, I'm going to put you in the same sentence as Peter Lynch. I know you fool that all the time, but that's, that's very good. Cool. You're very okay. kind. Peter Lynch, the great investment uh, from uh, Fidelity, where I've made a fortune with Magellan. Thank you so much for those kind words. How can I help? Okay. So about six or seven years ago, I took your advice on uh, bank stock. Okay. And I did very well out. I took my I took my money out, and I'm playing with the house. The only problem is I have Bank America, too. What do you think about FIBK? Well, you know... It, it, it certainly is cheap enough. Uh, the bank stocks have been houses of pain. Um, I cannot tell anyone to get into a house of pain. It only yields three. It's too low. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Stock of Boeing has become a battleground, and I hate battlegrounds. What defines a battleground stock? In Boeing's case, you have bulls saying that it's a screaming buy with its stock down more than 70 points from its high. You have bears pointing out that the darn thing is still up 15% since the beginning of the year, even as the company may end up owning, owing fortunes to the airlines that are losing money thanks to the grounding of the 737 MAX after those two tragic crashes. Who knows? I see many analysts trying to make cogent points about Boeing. Because they cover it, they have no choice but to offer an opinion. It's their job. But those opinions are all over the place, which tells you that no one has much of an idea of what will happen and certainly no conviction. Some analysts say it would be three to six month problem. I think it's an indeterminate problem. We don't know what's wrong. We don't know if anything needs to be fixed. But if it does, we know Boeing will take care of the job and do it right. If it takes six months, then that's the cost of them in cash flow. What is it? I don't know. And now that the most popular aircraft is grounded, who knows what it'll cost? What kind of reparations will they need to pay to airlines like Southwest that were banking on this plane to meet the numbers? The truth is, again, nobody knows. But here's the thing. That's okay. You don't need to opine on everything. Even I don't need to opine on everything. And opining is part of my job description. If you put a gun in my head and ask me what to do with Boeing stock, I ask you very politely, put the gun down. Because at the end of the day, I don't know what to do with Boeing here. And as a general rule, you should steer clear of battlegrounds like this one unless you've got some sort of very strong conviction that the battle will go one way or the other. And I don't know how anyone can feel that way. Boeing's a question mark. Why would you buy a question mark? In the whole universe of stocks, there are plenty that I want to recommend very badly. For example, in last night's show, Michael Dell traced out a vision for Dell Technologies. I was blown away about how good it was. Frankly, this is the opposite of a battleground. There's no real bear case to speak of, aside from the fact that the company has more than $50 billion in debt. But wait a second. That may seem daunting at first glance, and it's certainly what's keeping the stock down. But when you look at Dell's cash flow, it's running at around $10 billion, and it only gets stronger going forward. Plus, the company has $24 billion in deferred revenue, which makes it even more appealing. You take the balance sheet boogeyman away, which I'm telling you should, and you have a stock that's trading at less than nine times next year's earnings estimates. That makes Dell stock ridiculously cheap, especially when you consider that the company's really crushing it here, particularly when it comes to taking market share in the enterprise space. Big companies. Remember, Michael said that 99% of the companies in the Fortune 500 use Dell. 
That's an amazing level of market penetration. Now compare Dell with Boeing. Dell has no real bear case aside from the balance sheet, and I think that's overblown. Boeing has a potentially huge amount of risk. It's essentially unquantifiable at this point. Dell has strong momentum thanks to the secular growth of the Internet of Things and the cloud. Boeing has a major cyclical component that could be hurt if the global economy keeps slowing, something that's very possible if we don't reach some sort of deal with China. Seems like an easy call, right? Sure, except there are no analysts who cover both Dell and Boeing. They're specialized based on sector, so they can't recommend something that's outside the wheelhouse. But we don't have that problem here. Remember, there are no cold strikes in this business. That's some genuine homespun Warren Buffett wisdom. So, should you, so keep your bat on your shoulder when it comes to Boeing. But as for Dell, you know what I'm doing on this, our 14th anniversary? I am greenlighting you to take a big swing. It's a fat pitch, and I have faith you'll knock it out of the park. Stick with Kramer. You are super. You are awesome. I'm a first-time investor. Thank you for inspiring me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you're on TV. I want you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer. Happy 14th anniversary, you maniac. I like to say this always more. I promise I'm right just for you right here, man, buddy. I'm Jim Kramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.